Welcome to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I've got my dad, Terry Fakes, with us again this morning. Good morning. So, this past week in the church, on two sides of the aisle, Catholic and Protestant, uh, there are there's a lot going on. And so, one of the things we want to talk about this week is uh, the sexual scandals in the Catholic Church and in the Protestant Church, specifically at Willow Creek. But I think our point, what we want to discuss, is not so much the details of what happened in the Catholic Church, or even necessarily the details of the what happened at Willow Creek, but really want to talk about something that's behind that, that's beyond Protestant and Catholic and affects, quote, the church as a whole. What's that, what's that focus behind this? Yeah, you know, most of what you're seeing, um, especially, let's take the Willow Creek situation to begin. Most of what you're seeing from Willow Creek is kind of of two natures, either on the one hand, there's still speculation about what exactly happened. You know, Hybels hasn't come forward yet and admitted right. to anything. You know, from what we've heard from him, he he's denied everything. And so there's a lot of unknown just in what actually happened in that mm-hmm. one. On the other side, I think some of the good things that have come from that is you've seen a lot of articles in the last couple of weeks talking about accountability in the church, elder boards, you know. And I think there's something to be said for that. If you're at a big church and you're on an elder board, you've got to be thinking to yourself, what what would we do Absolutely. if something like this happened? How would we do something different than Willow? And if Willow could have this happen, right. we could too. One of the models. I, I think that's probably the two things that you're seeing the most. What, what I think is probably the most pressing issue at the root of both of these scandals is the way that power is viewed biblically versus the way that it's viewed socially. What do you mean by and that? So, what we see in the church is over the last you know 50 years, and probably this has probably been an issue for the last 2,000 years, but especially in America the last 50 years, there has been this movement in Christian leadership to embrace and include secular leadership. Now, this is probably in light of the fact that in the secular world, leadership has become a much bigger topic. You, right. know, you have the whole management revolution, and, and now it's the most populous section, maybe next to self-help, of any bookstore is leadership books and, you know, vision and PR and all that kind of thing. And the church has definitely jumped on that bandwagon as well. Well, part of the problem is, and you've seen this argument take place, should the church be able to take secular leadership books, advice, TED Talks, whatever, right, and seamlessly migrate them into church leadership? And what's most interesting about this situation is probably the person who's done that the most, or at least as the biggest influence in in Christian leadership, is Bill Hybels. So part of the Hybels model is built on the fact that whether you're a Christian or whether you're secular, religious, non-religious, leadership is leadership. That's kind of his thing. And so he's probably just as well known as a leadership guru as he is a Christian pastor. You see other pastors coming along with this. Andy Stanley, the Catalyst Movement, Craig Rochelle. I mean, it's all over the place now. You have this whole cottage industry of Christian leadership that looks almost exactly the same as secular leadership. Mm-hmm. One of my concerns, and I think one of the things that we're learning from this is, I'm not sure that secular leadership works in the church. And it's not just because the techniques are bad. I mean, some of them are really good. I've learned a lot from reading leadership books. It's not just because the principles don't work. People are people both places. I'm convinced that you can't transfer secular leadership 
seamlessly into the church because the nature of power is completely different in the church than it is in the culture. Right. Well, you get certain books like uh, Good to Great, for example, almost seem to acknowledge this to some extent when uh, he found in his studies that some of the best CEOs embraced, I'm going to use a term that's, that's foreign to the book, but essentially covers it, and that is servant leadership. So you begin to see uh, someone try to tie together really effective leadership in the secular world, modeling in some sense Christ's servant leadership. But it does point up what you're saying. Secular leadership is typically not built around the same idea of power as the church. Yeah, I think it's interesting if you look, if you do a quick survey of where leadership has come from in the last 20 years. So one of the best leadership books of all time, actually a management book, Peter Drucker, The Effective Executive, has this conception of an executive or of a leader or a manager as someone who has the right information to make the right decisions at the right time. I mean, that it is a mechanical organization-based model of leadership. And that's really gone out of fashion in business books today. What you see today is a relational, trust-based, moral kind of leadership. So that now the buzzwords in leadership are transparency and Mm -hmm. inclusion and diversity and uh, relational ability. So you see this whole EQ movement. Your emotional IQ may be more important than your concrete management skills to running something. But let me give you a counterpoint here and see if you agree with this. But for all of its kinder, gentler nature, the essential goal in secular leadership is to acquire power and use it for productive purposes. So a CEO, it is not considered an immoral thing to acquire power, frankly, if you look around, by whatever means necessary. And then they are judged not by on how they acquired the power, but how they used it. Poster child for this, Steve Jobs. By all accounts, Steve Jobs was less than what you and I would call ethical Mm -hmm. in the acquisition of his power. And yet he's idolized as a leader because of the great things he did with that power. Flip that around and move to the church. I think you're right. That's a foreign model in the church. I know that we've transferred it over to some extent, but Jesus Christ didn't say, I'm going to get power and use it for good purposes. In fact, he flipped that upside down and he basically asks us to give up power. Is that kind of what you're getting at with the idea that secular leadership and church leadership are different in a very basic way? Yeah, underlying both organizational structures and and the styles of leadership that you see work, there are some common principles. But at the end of the day, yeah, if you if you walk into the business section of Barnes and Noble or on Amazon and you look at the best sellers, no matter how you package it, and the packaging changes over time. That's why you have new business books, whether right. it's, you know, the PR that you're working on for your company or, you know, the thing that always makes me kind of laugh a little bit is these companies that are so focused about going green and being, you know, environmentally conscious. It's like that's because it's popular. Right. It you can say whatever you want about social issues and that kind of thing, but at the bottom of secular leadership, the goal is the same. Increase shareholder value. Like That's your goal. Exactly. And however you want to accomplish that, that's your goal. Well, that cannot be your goal in the church. 
And this is where I see Willow as one of those pioneer churches. So in the seeker movement, you know, in the early days of Willow, Bill Hybels has on his door, who is our customer and what do they want? Yes. Okay, you could see that at any Fortune 500 company in the world. Right. Partially because that is the kind of question you ask if you're trying to increase your company value. Right. If you're worried about profit margins, if you're worried about you know selling a product, that's a great question to ask. Well, let me take this one step further, too, because I would suspect that if you were the church leader, you might say, yes, but my motives are different. I'm not trying to make profit. I'm trying to expand the kingdom of God. I'm trying to get more seekers in here, etc. And I appreciate that point, and I don't think either one of us are questioning the sincerity of people involved in that. But here's the point I would make, is that those techniques are insidious. Let me give you a great example. The LGBTQ lobby, over the past several decades, once that became got to a certain level of popularity, you saw corporations begin to get onto that bandwagon, much like they did the Green Revolution, etc. They got onto the bandwagon to the point where today, if you, any major corporation is going to trumpet their support for the LGBTQ agenda. Now, here's my point. However, what you're seeing now from the LGBTQ advocacy is that they have been co-opted by the corporations. Mm-hmm. In other words, the corporations were never on that bandwagon because they, by and large, believed in the cause. They simply thought it helped them sell product. And now that LGBTQ lobby has been successful with that support, they're being co-opted to be no more than another marketing technique. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing uh, lobbyists for LGBTQ causes begin to recognize, wait a minute, our cause is in danger of being hijacked. Yeah, that's a great that's a great principle. If we're going to boil this down to one of the major dividing lines between the way the world sees power and the way the church sees power, the world sees power as an end in and of itself. It's it's inherently self-seeking. Mm-hmm. So power, the result of power is money, personal image, you know, it you acquire power for immediate return and future return. Right. So if that's your goal, then what you do is you take everything else and you make it subservient to power. So ideologies, for example, like you just mentioned, that ideology is being used. It's not an end in and of itself, even if you believed right. it, which I think a lot of them do. It's an end to power. In the church, that is reversed. Right. So power now is a means to an end. So the glory of God the advance of the gospel, the discipleship of the nations is the goal. And in the church, all power is subordinate to that goal. Right. So you use the power that God makes available to accomplish the goal that God has set out for the church. I think that probably to me is the biggest difference. And what I want to hone in on as we think a little bit practically here is if that's the way power is described biblically. There are good and bad ways of going about using power, acquiring power, viewing power in the church Mm -hmm. that are not the same as the world. Because I don't want to say for a minute that I think Bill Hybels is 
secular in that way of viewing power. I, I right. really don't think he wanted to use the church to accumulate personal power, right. even if that's what happened. Right. I really do think he wants to use his power to advance the mission of God, and he did it in some ways that were extremely harmful. Mm-hmm. So let's talk for a moment about ways to use power, ways to acquire power in the church that are godly, biblical ways to view power. I want to throw one out um, to get us started. I think one of the ways that the Bible describes power, at least power acquisition, is that we don't seek power through human avenues, but we use it when it becomes available to us. Right. So if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says, where is the wise? Where are the debaters of this age? Has not God shamed the wise right. with the foolishness of the gospel? You know, he says, not many of you guys were, you know, high status and lots of money and popular and exactly. culturally savvy, but God brought things even that didn't exist so that he could use them to prove his power to society. Well, and just staying with 1 Corinthians, move on to chapter 12. You have that famous uh, passage where, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about the idea of in his weakness, he is strong. You know, the thorn in the flesh, and he prays to God, and God said, my grace is enough for you. And he said, well, then in that case, I'll boast about my weakness. And so God, God uses power in different ways. By the way, I know you are also a fan of Walter Brueggemann, uh, one of the preeminent Old Testament scholars, but this is a theme that runs through his writings in looking at the Old Testament about how God took the weak of the world, for example, the Israelites as slaves in Egypt, and showed the world that power is not what you think it is. Mm-hmm. And so the Israelites didn't acquire power. They didn't get armaments or train their army or anything. They didn't acquire it. They simply used power that God gave them to achieve his ends. I think you'll see that theme confirm what you're saying. And what's what, what you get on the practical level is the, the rebuttal to this might be, so am I, am I just supposed to sit back and, and relinquish any worldly power that I do right. have? Maybe. I'm not going to rule that possibility out, but, but I also don't want to say that there's no good way to use earthly power. But the Bible is pretty clear. In ministry, you have certain avenues available to you to do what God has called you to accomplish. The word of God, the water of baptism, the, you know, the bread and the wine of communion. Like These are the tools that we have. And it reminds you of the passage where it says, not by might. You yeah. might just insert like secular leadership books there. Not by, you know, you know not by strength. By my spirit. That is the primary channel of power available to the church. You know, Eugene Peterson captures that also perfectly well in his book, The Contemplative Pastor. He talks about the role of a pastor, and it's not what you would think. He says the primary things that a pastor does is the ministry of the word, reading, teaching, preaching the word, prayer, and then being with people in their lives. Nowhere in there is, and again, I'm I'm not trying to paint with too broad a brush here, but there's not a marketing campaign in that. Mm -hmm. There's not, you know, a new uh, way to entice people to come to your church. I'm not throwing all those out entirely. I'm simply saying that when you get back to the foundation of how does God typically provide power, it comes through those vehicles. One of my favorite things that Eugene Peterson has always kind of advocated in his books on pastoral ministry is that the church is not a marketing firm. 
And if you look around, and this is a this is a hard critique to stomach, a lot of American Christianity is marketing. And most of the time it's second rate marketing at that. It's not even good marketing usually. Mm-hmm. But all of the stuff that we do to try to attract people, it's as if we're saying beneath that, Jesus isn't good enough by himself. The spirit isn't good enough by itself. We need to launch this marketing campaign so that people will come to believe or people will come to our church or that kind of thing. Now, obviously, on the flip side of that, you don't need to be more abrasive or standoffish than the gospel necessitates. So I'm you're not, not saying, saying the Amish way is the way. I'm not saying that, but, I, <laughs> but I'm saying that if we constantly rely on worldly avenues of power, then we shouldn't be surprised when we reap worldly outcomes. That's true. There's a quote from Eugene Peterson that convicts me personally. Let me get personal here for a moment. He says, basically, uh, one of the problems in the American church is that our pastors have been replaced by managers with business plans. And in a large church and doing a certain amount of management, which I think is essential, I am always challenged by do not cross the line. Do not mentally begin to think that these techniques are what are achieving God's purposes. I I find that to be very convicting and very useful for me. I I completely agree. So let's talk practically, because yeah, at a big church, it's it's naive. And you hear this a lot. If you work at a big church, you hear this critique a lot. Well, you guys are too much like a business. Right. Or, you know, you guys are just running this thing like a company. Well, in some sense, big churches are businesses. And they are companies, and you're dealing with a lot of money and a lot of personnel and a lot of opportunities. And I don't want to dismiss the fact that there are good things about secular leadership. There are some good things that we can learn from corporations, from CEOs that help in the church. Maybe, though, this is a matter of principle. I think, and I know this is true, this was true in my own ministry, our default setting is to ride on secular leadership principles until we feel compelled by God to do something else. <laughs> exactly. To rely on the Spirit or something like that. Yes. So that the majority of our ministry could happen if it were a business. If we were selling right. widgets instead of the gospel, we really wouldn't change very much stuff. I wonder if a biblical way to move forward from what we're seeing right now in the news and Willow Creek and the Catholic Church... I wonder if a productive way to refashion this is maybe we set our default on the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. We set our default on the fact that we are going to do this in a way that only God could think of this, only God could lead this. We are going to rely completely on what God has given in the Word and the Spirit until we are convicted by the Spirit that we need to do something in addition. So right. there may be times where it's like, you know, we're kind of at the end of our rope here. You know what would be really helpful? All of us have been praying, and we really think that we do need to grow in management. We need, yeah. to, And so we're going to take that, and then we're going to bring it into the context of a biblical view of power and a biblical view of organization, as opposed to what I think usually happens, which is we've got this secular organization where we try and smuggle in some biblical concepts, uh-huh. and they become con- they become conformed to a worldly model as opposed to taking, you know, plundering Egypt's goods, which would be management and, and all right. of that, bringing it into a spiritual organization and using it for the kingdom of God. I think that's really a great mental shift 
And I think once we've made the shift to using the secular techniques first, we've lost our way to some extent. Now, here's another thought for you, and this may be a sideline, if so, reel us back in. But I happen uh, to be fortunate enough to work at a church that does some of this really well. And what I mean is particularly in this sense, you know, our senior pastor, our leadership team are very interested in people. So at the same time that you have all these big programs, big plans, big money, big things going on, everybody on our leadership team is also doing personal ministry with people because you can't do very much of that without seeing, wow, the Holy Spirit did that. I can do a lot of management without necessarily seeing the Holy Spirit, but I can't do any one-on-one ministry without seeing that. And I think sometimes, particularly if you're leading a big organization, it's easy to get detached from that simple one-on-one pastoring people. Yeah, that is so true. And I, I think back to one of the books that has influenced me the most on the way that I saw the church, the way the church functions, what the church mm-hmm. should be. Kevin DeYoung wrote a book called What is the Mission of the Church? And in that book, he makes the point that there's only one organization in the world whose mission is to fulfill the Great Commission, to make disciples of all the nations. If your church's mission is basically to do social justice, right. well, there's a lot of organizations in the world that can do a much better job I than your church that point. That was of well doing made. that. Yes. If your mission is to manage, if your mission is to advertise, if your mission is to preach you know, really, really popular, great messages that are going to be all over the internet, well, TED Talks can do that 10 times better than you can. Right. But there's only one organization in the world whose goal is to make disciples of the nation for Christ, teaching them to be obedient to what he's commanded. And if that's the bread and butter of your work, you cannot do that with a secular vision of power. Right. You can use those techniques, but not uh, not the goal. Yeah, you, you have to make those things subservient to the goal of Christ. Exactly. As opposed to vice versa. Well, let me bring this down to a personal level a little bit. Here's what's going through my head as I think about this and I bring it down to you and me and our listeners in their daily drive is you, now we're talking about large church-wide things and that's important. But it strikes me that in God in his wisdom calls us to obedience and submission because of, first of all, who he is. But there's some wisdom in that because it's my commitment to obey Christ and submit to Christ that is protects me from my own personal fleshly nature that wants to abuse power. In other words, could Terry be the Catholic Church written very small? I don't mean could I do those things, but would I not also abuse my power? Would I not also in some way oppress someone else in my little world? That obedience to Christ is all that protects us from our own sinful nature that would abuse the whatever power we have. So I think this call to uh, obedience applies to churches, but I think it also applies to us as well. Okay, we we are an unashamedly book-friendly set of people here. We love reading. We love books. We love theology. So I, I actually got this from another podcast. There's a great podcast that Steve Nichols does called Five Minutes in Church History. And my favorite episodes on that podcast are when he brings a guest on and he says, okay, 
we're going to do you, we're going to send you on the best vacation of your life. And, and knowing you, this is particularly true. What we're going to do for you is we're going to pause all your responsibilities, everything, and we are going to send you to a all-expenses-paid desert island. By myself? By yourself. This is my favorite this is, vacation. This is your this is your dream vacation. We're going to send you to a desert island, and you are allowed to take five books. Now there's uh. some there are some added things on this island. So obviously there's you know a little bungalow. It's air conditioned. It's a great spot for reading, but there are also some books that are already there. Okay. So there's a Bible there. There are the life works of you know Luther and Calvin and Spurgeon that are already there. And all the books that you could say that are basically like, you know, how to get off a desert island, right. or how to build a boat, right. you know, flora and fauna of desert That's islands. Right. I think I'll you stay know, a like, while. Yeah. yeah, all those are already there. So what five books would you take to this desert island and why would you take them? Can I do, uh, if it's like a trilogy, can I just take the whole trilogy? Yeah, that counts as okay. one. You can that take a series as or a okay. set as one one book. Well, you know, I'm going to start on my fiction category. I'm not a big fiction reader, but I have to start with Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings trilogy I have read many, many times and intend to read many, many more. In fact, you know, when you asked me that, the first thing that came to my mind is not, oh, I'll take some books I haven't read. Actually, everyone that has come into my mind as we sit here are books I have read already more than once. Mm -hmm. It seems to me, this is the way my little brain works, is I'll take things that I've enjoyed and I could enjoy for the next few years. By the way, I plan to be there for a few years. Yeah, you, you'll be there for a while. Okay, so. that sounds great. My second choice would be, since I can get a collection, is uh, Gilbert's eight-volume biography of Churchill. Yeah, I mean, that one is... That is it's... just in detail. I can just savor it. And so I've, I've loved that treatment of Churchill's life. My third one is peculiar to me. I like international politics. I like to see how historically and in present times people have wielded power and how it works. And probably, in my view, the most brilliant statesman of the 20th century was Henry Kissinger. Not necessarily the most godly mm -hmm. man in the 20th century, but one of the most brilliant and incisive statesmen. His three-volume uh, memoirs of his pre-White House years, White House years, and then to some extent after White House years, that big three-volume set is just something I've read several times, and every time I read it, I get more insight. So my third one would be Kissinger's memoirs. Now, my fourth one, this may surprise you because I know you don't think I really have a poet's soul, but I have this great little book called 100 Greatest Poems. And it kind of mm -hmm. crosses all the spectrums and different nationalities. And, and I, believe it or not, read that pretty frequently. So that would be uh, my one little nod to the uh, artistic side. And then finally, I would take the collected works of Friedrich Nietzsche. Now, why would you take that? Why? That's kind of a strange well, thing. Frederick Nietzsche is, as you know, very interesting guy. Uh, you know, the God is dead guy. But it's my opinion, and I'd really like to write about this at some point, that Frederick Nietzsche captures fallen humanity. No varnish, no whitewash, just pure fallen humanity better than any writer I've, I've read before. And so he comes through as raw, human, hubris, human nature fallen and I just believe when I read him and occasionally I see myself in it I realize that's the reflection of my human nature that Jesus Christ is putting to death 
I value Nietzsche for his very uh, Superman complex. Well, it sounds like between your your Nietzsche and your poetry and Lord of the Rings, I mean, it sounds like you're going to have a good time on this desert I am island. going to enjoy this. Well, thanks for listening to another So We Speak podcast. For more information, go to SoWeSpeak.com. If you like what you've heard, share it or leave us a review on iTunes. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks.